Chapter 4, The Essence of Capitalist Exploitation How the workers are exploited by capital Labour power, a commodity The exploitation of the working class by the bourgeoisie prevails in all capitalist countries. The working class and the bourgeoisie, these are the two basic classes facing each other in every capitalist country. We must study the conditions that make it possible for the bourgeoisie to appropriate the fruits of the labour of the worker. We must understand the secret of capitalist exploitation, which was revealed by the great teacher of the proletariat, Marx. What is the secret of capitalist exploitation? How does it come about? What is the secret of the enrichment of the capitalists? By what invisible chains is the worker fettered to his exploiter? Why does one class grow rich on the impoverishment of the other? Marxian theory gives a clear and precise answer to every one of these questions. The Marxian teachings explain to us the inner structure of the capitalist world, uncover all the inner springs of its development and its inevitable collapse. In a previous chapter, we have studied simple commodity production and its basic law, the law of value. Simple commodity production inevitably produces capitalist elements in its midst. Simple commodity production grows into, is transformed into capitalism. The law of value is the law of the development of commodity production. The development leads to capitalism. Together with this development, also grows the power of the elemental law of value. What is capitalism? Lenin answers this question as follows. Quote, capitalism is commodity production at the highest stage of development, when labour power itself becomes a commodity. End quote. Under commodity production, things are produced not for immediate use, but for exchange, for the market, for sale. The law of value governs production and exchange of commodities. Commodities are exchanged in accordance with their value, i.e. in accordance with the quantity of socially necessary labour needed to produce them. Capitalism does not abolish commodity production and its laws. On the contrary, under capitalism, commodity production reaches its highest stage of development. Under capitalism, the laws governing commodity production enforce their rule to an even greater extent. Hence the laws of capitalist production are based upon the laws of commodity production and primarily upon the law of value. Quote, capitalist production is marked from the outset by two peculiar traits, says Marx. One, it produces its products as commodities. The fact that it produces commodities does not distinguish it from other modes of production. Its peculiar mark is that the prevailing and determining character of its products is that of being commodities. This implies, in the first place, that the labourer himself acts in the role of a seller of commodities, as a free wage worker, so that wage labour is the typical character of labour. Number two, the other specific mark of the capitalist mode of production is the production of surplus value as the direct aim and determining incentive of production. Capital produces essentially capital and does so only to the extent that it produces surplus value. End quote. 
the framework of commodity production expands under capitalism, a new commodity appears, which did not exist under the system of simple commodity production, labour power. What sort of commodity is this? Marx answers this question as follows, quote, by labour power or capacity for labour is to be understood with aggregate of those mental and physical capabilities existing in a human being, which he exercises whenever he produces use value of any description. End quote. In other words, labour power is man's capacity for labour, his capacity for productive activity. Marx says, quote, the capitalist buys labour power in order to use it, and labour power in use is labour itself. End quote. Under capitalism, labour power becomes a commodity, but is labour power always a commodity? By far, not always, of course. Take the petty producer. He works on his own strip of land or in his own workshop himself. He sells his produce, but he does not sell his labour power. He uses his labour power himself. It is clear that he can, he can do this only so long as he possesses his own strip of land or workshop. Take away his tools or bench from the artisan, take away the strip of land from the petty farmer, and they can no longer apply their labour power in their own undertaking. What then remains for them to do? In order not to starve, they are compelled to apply for work to the capitalist who owns the factory, the land, the plant or the railroad. But what does hiring out to a capitalist mean? It means selling one's labour power. We thus see that definite conditions or prerequisites are necessary for the rise of capitalism. It is necessary for some members of society to have in their hands all the means of production or sufficient money for the purchase of these means. And, on the other hand, it is necessary that there should be a class of people who are forced to sell their labour power. Quote, the historical prerequisites to the genesis of capital are first accumulation of a considerable sum of money in the hands of individuals under conditions of a comparatively high development of commodity production in general and second, the existence of workers who are free in a double sense of the term free from any constraint or restriction as regards the sale of their labour power, free from the land or from the means of production in general, i.e. of propertyless workers or proletarians who cannot maintain their existence except by the sale of their labour power. End quote. Primitive accumulation. Capitalism arises on the ruins of the preceding social order. The landlord feudal economy. Capitalism grows on the soil of petty commodity production. Capitalism affects a radical transformation of the previously existing social relations. How did the capitalists really get rich? At the beginning of the capitalist era, some three or four hundred years ago, the then foremost European countries, Spain and Portugal, Holland and England had developed a wide overseas trade. Intrepid travellers discovered routes to the distant and rich countries of the East, India and China, 
America was discovered. The invention of gunpowder made it easy for the Europeans to overcome the resistance of the native populations of these countries. All America was turned into a series of colonies. The robbing of the richest overseas countries was one of the most important sources of primitive accumulation of European capital, especially English. Another source was war among the countries of Europe itself and the pillage of vanquished countries. Finally, the robbing of the people of their own country by means of usury. Robbing by means of overseas trade at usurious prices and partly direct robbery, especially piracy, are not the least important methods employed in the history of the birth of capital. But the accumulation of wealth is only half the problem, the solution of which is necessary for the appearance of capitalist production. The second half is the obtaining of a sufficient number of free hands. No man will go to work for a capitalist so long as he has the possibility of working independently. It is necessary to take away this means of production from the petty producer in order to compel him to take to the market all that remains to him, his labour power. Another necessary condition for wage labour is that people must be personally free so that they can move freely from place to place, so that they can freely dispose of their labour power. These conditions did not exist under serfdom, which prevailed everywhere in Europe. That is why capitalism destroys previously existing serfdom. But it is not enough for the interests of capital to free the peasant. He must also be placed in a position where he is compelled to look for work at the enterprises of the capitalist. True, capital obtains a certain number of wage labours from among the artisans and handy craftsmen it ruins. But this number is insufficient. New enterprises demand vast masses of workers. Moreover, capital must always have a reserve of a certain number of workers, as we shall see later. Hence, simultaneously with the liberation of the peasantry from serfdom, another, no less important, liberation is effected. The peasant is liberated from the land on which he worked. To the peasant is left, and generally he must buy it at that. Only that portion of the land which fed him under the landlord. Insufficiency of land drives the peasantry into the claws of capital. Excess labour leaves the village and constitutes the reserve army of wage labourers at the disposal of capitalist industry. Thus, primitive accumulation creates the necessary prerequisites for the rise of capitalism. It creates the necessary conditions without which capitalism cannot exist. We've already seen what these conditions are. They are, on the one hand, accumulation of wealth in the hands of a small portion of society and, on the other hand, the transformation of a vast mass of workers into proletarians having no means of production and therefore compelled to sell their labour power. Primitive accumulation thus affects the separation of the producer from his means of production. This separation is brought about by the cruelest methods of robbery and plunder, murder and violence. 
after these conditions for the rise of capitalism have been created, they further entrench themselves by the very process of capitalist production. When workers bend their backs at a capitalist factory, they multiply the wealth of their exploiter, but they themselves remain the same dispossessed proletarians compelled to sell their labour power. The transformation of money into capital. At first, capital emerges in the form of money. Therefore, money plays a prominent part in the transition from small-scale production to capitalism. At a certain stage of the development of commodity production, money is transformed into capital. The formula for commodity circulation used to be C, commodity, to M, money, to C, commodity, i.e. the sale of one commodity for the purchase of another. The general formula for capital is the reverse of this, M to C to M, i.e. buying for the purpose of selling, at a profit. What is the difference between these two formula? The formula C to M to C is characteristic of simple commodity production. Here one commodity is exchanged for another. Money serves only as a medium of exchange. Here the purpose of the exchange is clear. The shoemaker, let us say, exchanges his boots for bread. One use value is exchanged for another. The commodity producer hands over the commodity which he does not need and receives in exchange another commodity which he needs. The formula for the circulation of capital is of an entirely different character. The capitalist goes to the market in possession of a certain sum of money. The point of departure here is not the commodity, but money. With his money, the capitalist buys certain commodities. However, the movement of capital does not end with this. The commodity of the capitalist is converted into money. Thus, the starting point and the finishing point of the movement of capital coincide. The capitalist had money in the beginning, and he has money in the end. But, as is well known, money is always the same. It does not differ qualitatively, it differs only quantitatively. Money is unlike other commodities which are distinguished by their great qualitative diversiveness. Thus, the entire movement of capital would be quite absurd if at the end of the movement the capitalist had only as much as he had at first. The whole reason for the existence of capital, the whole meaning of its movement, is that at the end of this movement more money is withdrawn from circulation than was put in at the beginning. The goal of capital is the extraction of profit. Its formula is not selling in order to buy again, as in the case of the simple commodity producer, but buying in order to sell and extract profit. But in what way is this profit obtained? If the capitalist buys an any ordinary commodity with his money and then sells it above cost price, he enriches himself, but only at the expense of other capitalists, either at the expense of those whom he tricks by buying the commodity and not paying its actual price, or at the expense of those to whom he sells the commodity for more than its price, or at the expense of both. 
but the capitalist class cannot prosper by cheating itself by the mutual trickery of the individual capitalists then how is profit obtained obviously the capitalist who goes to the market with his money must find a commodity of a special kind it must be a commodity that creates value while it is being used and under capitalist conditions there is such a commodity this commodity is labor power buying and selling of labor power and its value under commodity economy every commodity is sold at its value what does the worker sell he sells his labor power which is essential for the capitalist to conduct his enterprise but we know that every commodity has its value and that this value is determined by the labor time necessary to produce this commodity what is the value of that commodity which the worker sells the commodity labor power it is perfectly evident that a person can work only when he is able to maintain his existence feeds and clothes himself and has a place to rest his head it is understood that a human being can perform work only when he satisfies his wants at any rate his most elemental needs if a worker is hungry if he has no clothes he becomes unfit for work he loses his labor power it can therefore be considered that the production of labor power consists in the satisfaction of the most elemental needs of the worker but we also know that all those things which go to satisfy the needs of man food clothing and shelter are commodities under capitalism and cannot be obtained free of charge a definite quantity of labor is spent in producing them and this determines their value thus the value of the commodity called labor power is equal to the value of those commodities the worker must consume in order to maintain his existence and that of his family in order to recuperate his labor power and to secure future labor power for the capitalists the value of labor power is determined by the value of the necessaries of life habitually required by the average labourer from Marx Capital Volume 1. But the value of these commodities depends on the labour necessary to produce them. In other words, the value of the commodity called labour power is determined by the quantity of labour necessary to produce this peculiar commodity, while this commodity, as we have already said, consists of the food, clothing, etc. consumed by the worker. It is this value of the commodity called labour power that is paid for by the capitalist in the form of wages. The capitalist owns a plant. Buildings in which there is machinery, warehouses in which there are raw material and fuel, all kinds of auxiliary material. All this is dead without human labour. Therefore, a capitalist hires workers. With this, he buys the last commodity necessary. Now everything is in order. Production can begin. The workers begin to work. The enterprise is started. The machinery is in motion. Having hired the labourer, bought his labour power for a definite time, the capitalist makes him work. In this lies the entire purpose of his purchase of labour power. One must not confuse labour power with labour. Labour power and labour are not one and the same thing. Labour power is the ability of people to work. Labour is the creator of value, but it cannot itself become a commodity. The commodity is labour power. We know that there is a distinction between, say, a locomotive and the motion of the locomotive. The locomotive may stand still at a station. 
In this case, there is a locomotive, but there is no motion. But the locomotive possesses the ability to move. When necessary, it begins to move. In the same way, labour power may remain unused. If its owner is unemployed, for instance. But inasmuch as the unemployed worker still has labour power, provided he has not fallen ill or does not drop from hunger, he may, at a suitable moment, begin to work just as the locomotive may begin to move after a long stop. The price of a commodity, as we have already seen in previous chapters, may be above or below its value. However, unlike most other commodities, with respect to labour power, there is always a tendency for the price to stay below its value. That means that the worker does not get a sufficiency of the means of subsistence necessary to cover all his wants. If we say that the value of labour power is determined by the value of the means of subsistence necessary to maintain the existence of the worker, we do not at all mean to assert that the worker always receives for his labour power its full value. On the contrary, in the vast majority of cases, he is compelled to sell his labour power at a price below its value. However, even when the worker receives the full value of his labour power, the capitalist gets surplus value from production, and this serves as a source of enrichment to him. What is the source of the capitalist's profits? We have already seen how commodities are exchanged at their value. Now let us see how the value created by some people goes into the pockets of others. Starting in business, the capitalist purchases everything necessary for production, machinery, raw material, fuel. He also buys the necessary labour power by hiring workers. Production begins at the factory. Fuel is burned, the machinery operates, the workers labour, the raw material is transformed into commodities. When the commodities are ready, they are sold and with the money obtained the capitalist can begin the cycle all over again. What is the value of the commodities thus produced? Their value consists first of all in the cost of the commodities spent in their production, the wear and tear of machinery, the fuel consumed and the raw material used up. Let us assume that the value of all this was 3,000 hours of labour. Then a new value enters, created by the workers at the particular factory. Let us assume that 20 men worked 10 hours a day, each for 5 days. It is easy to see that by this they have created a value of 1,000 hours of labour. Thus, the full value of the new commodity which the capitalist has is 3,000 plus 1,000 equals 4,000 hours of labour. The question now arises, what did this cost the capitalist himself? It is quite evident that for the wear and tear of machinery, for the fuel burned and for the raw material, the capitalists had to pay their full value, i.e. a sum of money equivalent to 3,000 hours of labour. But in addition to this 3,000 hours of labour, 1,000 hours of labour spent by the wage workers also entered into the value of the new commodity. Did the capitalist also pay out to his workers the equivalent of 1,000 hours of labour? Herein lies the solution of the whole secret of capitalist exploitation. The capitalist pays the 20 workers the value of their labour power for five days, 
that is, he pays them a sum sufficient to produce their labour power for five days, it is easy to understand that this sum amounts to less than 1,000 hours. The amount of labour the worker spends at the factory is, of course, one thing, while the value of the commodities needed to maintain his capacity to work is quite another. Quote, the value of labour power and the value which that labour power creates in the labour process are two entirely different magnitudes, end quote, says Marx. To return to our example, we may assume that the value of the labour power of one worker amounts to five hours of labour, then the capitalist will pay his workers a sum of money equivalent to 500 hours of labour that is now total up. The capitalist's expenditures then amount to 3,000 plus 500 equals 3,500 hours of labour, but the value of the commodities, as we have seen, was 3,000 plus 1,000 equals 4,000 hours of labour. Surplus labour and surplus value. Where does the capitalist's profit come from? It is now easy to answer this question. The profit is the fruit of the unpaid labour of the workers. This profit is the fruit of the additional, or as it is called, the surplus labour of the workers, who during five hours of the day produce a value equal to their wages, and during the other five hours produce surplus value, which goes into the pockets of the capitalist. The unpaid portion of labour is the source of surplus value, the source of all profit, all unearned increment. The wage labourer sells his labour power to the owner of land, of factories and instruments of labour. The worker uses one part of the labour day to cover the expenditure for the maintenance of himself and his family, wages, and the other part of the day he toils without remuneration and creates surplus value for the capitalist, which is the source of profit, the source of wealth of the capitalist class. The doctrine of surplus value is the cornerstone of the economic theory of Marx. Uh, it's a quotation from Lenin, Marx, Engels, Marxism, the three sources and the three component parts of Marxism, a pamphlet in itself worth reading. Leontiev continues, the Marxian doctrine of surplus value discloses the secret of capitalist exploitation. That is why this teaching is an invaluable weapon in the hands of the proletariat struggling for the destruction of capitalism, for the creation of the new communist society. That is why the bourgeoisie and its learned henchmen rage against the Marxian doctrine of surplus value. That is why they are continually trying to refute and to destroy this teaching. The Marxian doctrine of surplus value is based, as we have seen, on his teaching of value. That is why it is important to keep the Marxian teaching of value free from all distortion because the theory of exploitation is built on it. We can now sum up our investigation of the sources of enrichment of the capitalists. This summary can best be made by citing the concise and clear exposition of the teaching on surplus value which we find in the works of Lenin. And the following is a quote. Surplus value cannot arise out of the circulation of commodities, for this represents only the exchange of equivalents. It cannot arise out of an advance in price, for the mutual losses and gains of buyers and sellers would equalise one another, 
And what we are concerned with here is not the individual, but the mass average social phenomenon. In order that he may be able to receive surplus value, moneybags must find in the market a commodity whose use value possesses the peculiar property of being a source of value. A commodity, the actual process of whose use, is at the same time the process of the creation of value. Such a commodity exists. It is human labour power. Its use is labour, and labour creates value. The owner of money buys labour power at its value, which is determined, like the value of every other commodity, by the socially necessary labour time requisite for its production, that is to say, the cost of maintaining the worker and his family. Having brought labour power, the owner of money is entitled to use it, that is, set it to work for the whole day, twelve hours, let us suppose. Meanwhile, in the course of six hours, necessary labour time, the labourer produces sufficient to pay back the cost of his own maintenance, and in the course of the next six hours, surplus labour time, he produces a surplus product or surplus value, for which the capitalist does not pay him. End quote. In ancient times, when people had not yet emerged from a state of savagery, primitive man spent all his strength and energy to obtain the bare necessities of life. The savage just managed to keep himself from dying of hunger by means of the things his labour bought him. When primitive man struggled against hunger with difficulty, there could be no social inequality among people, as there is none, say, among animals. The introduction of surplus labour creates the possibility for the rise of inequality, the possibility of the exploitation of man by man. The surplus labour of some people goes for the benefit of others. The product of this surplus labour falls into the hands of the higher class in society which exploits the lower class. Such a situation persists up to and including the capitalist era. True, the forms of exploitation change. Exploitation has different aspects in the slaveholding, feudal and capitalist systems. But in essence, it remains the same. It consists of the appropriation of the surplus labour of the entire society by the ruling class. And follows a quote from Capital, Volume 1, page 200. The essential difference between the various economic forms of society, between, for instance, a society based on slave labour and one based on wage labour, lies only in the mode in which the surplus labour is in each case extracted from the actual producer, the labourer. End quote. Capital did not invent surplus labour, Marx pointed out. Everywhere, wherever society consists of exploiters and exploited, the ruling class extracts surplus labour from the vast masses of the toiling and exploited population. Under capitalism, however, the thirst for surplus labour assumes a more insatiable character than under any previous form of class society. Under slavery and serfdom, while natural production predominated, there were definite limits to the amount of surplus labour appropriated. The slaveholder or feudal lord squeezed as much labour out of the masses exploited by them as was necessary to satisfy their needs or desires. Under capitalism, on the contrary, there are no limits to the thirst for surplus labour. The surplus labour which the capitalist squeezes out of the worker is transformed into ringing coins which can again be set to work as new, supplementary capital, bringing new surplus value. 
the capitalist method of production is distinguished by its insatiable thirst for surplus labour. Under capitalism, the tendency to increase the exploitation of the worker knows no bounds. The capitalists neglect no means to increase the exploitation of their wage slaves. It's perfectly clear that with the destruction of the capitalist system, with the abolition of capitalist production, the extraction of surplus labour from the workers for the benefit of the capitalist stops. An end is put to the division of the working day into necessary and surplus hours, in the sense in which it is divided under the domination of capital. Here is what Marx says about this. Only by suppressing the capitalist form of production could the length of the working day be reduced to the necessary labour time. But even in that case, the latter would extend its limits. On the one hand, because the notion of means of subsistence would considerably expand and the labourer would lay claim to an altogether different standard of life. On the other hand, because a part of what is now surplus labour would then count as necessary labour. I mean, the labour of forming a fund for reserve and accumulation. A reserve for the means of production and subsistence which will permit of the expansion of industry and recompense for possible losses, among others, those due to accidents. These words of Marx give the key to understanding of the state of things in the socialist economy of the United Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, where exploitation of the workers no longer exists. In the socialist enterprises of the USSR, for the first time in history, class exploitation has been torn up by the roots. In Soviet enterprises, there are no two classes with opposing interests as there are in capitalist enterprises. The enterprises are the property of the Soviet state, of the proletarian dictatorship. The class owning the plants and factories, and the class labouring at these enterprises, is one and the same class. Under Soviet conditions, the worker does not sell his labour power to a representative of an alien and hostile class. There is not, and there cannot be, any production of surplus value in the socialist economy of the USSR. The excess created by labour of the worker, over and above his earnings, goes to cover the collective requirements of that same working class and its dictatorship for the general needs of the country, for socialist accumulation, for defence requirements, etc. The inventions of the Trotskyists to the effect that the industries of the USSR presumably are state capitalist and not socialist are therefore nothing but malicious counter-revolutionary slanders. With these slanders, Trotskyism tries to cover up its traitorous attempts to undermine the work of socialist construction in the USSR. What is capital? We have analysed the production of surplus value. We have studied the dynamics of the appropriation of the unpaid labour of workers by the capitalists. We have seen that the only source of unearned increment for the capitalists is the labour of the proletarians. Now let us take a closer look at the invisible force which compels millions of people to submit to the caprices of a handful of capitalists. We must more closely examine the power of capital, analyse what capital is. The exploitation of the workers by the capitalists is possible only because under capitalism, all wealth is concentrated in the hands of the bourgeoisie. 
the capitalists own all the means of production and existence. The workers have neither the one nor the other. The bourgeoisie has monopolised, that is, taken exclusive possession of, all the wealth of society. Quote, the characteristic features of capitalist society, which arose on the basis of commodity production, are the monopoly of the most important and vital means of production by the capitalist class and big landlords. The exploitation of the wage labour of the proletariat which, being deprived of the means of production, is compelled to sell its labour power, the production of commodities for profit and, linked up with all this, the planless and anarchic character of the process of production as a whole. End quote. This is how the capitalist system is characterised in the programme of the Communist International. Under capitalism, the proletariat is deprived of the means of production. By means of production, we understand those things that are of prime necessity for man to work with. It is easy to note that the means of production consist of several most important parts. These are, first of all, the instruments of labour, from which the cobbler's simple all to the most complex and intricate machines in modern plants and factories. Further, there is the raw material which must be used. The raw material for boots is leather. For the smelting of iron, iron ore is the raw material. For the weaving of calico, cotton is the raw material. Finally, there are a number of accessory materials needed for work such as oil, sand, lime, etc. The lot of these different elements of the means of production in work is not the same. The instruments of labour last a long time. In a textile mill, the same looms will weave many pieces of fabric. The materials used have quite a different fate. The raw material disappears in the process of production. It is transformed into an entirely new product. The lever in the hands of the cobbler becomes boots, cloth in the hands of the tailor becomes a suit, or at a metallurgical plant is made into iron. The accessory materials are also completely used up in the process of work. Fuel vanishes in heating the factory boilers, oil disappears in the machinery. Under capitalism, these means of production, without which no work is possible, are in the hands of the bourgeoisie. This gives the bourgeoisie tremendous power over society. In the hands of the bourgeoisie, the means of production become means of exploitation because they are concentrated in comparatively few hands while the vast mass of the population is deprived of them and must therefore sell its labour power. Capital is not a thing, but a definite social relation, said Marx. Things means of production, and all other kinds of commodities in the hands of the bourgeoisie in themselves are not capital. Only a definite social system makes these things into means of exploitation, converts them into carriers of that social relation which we call capital. Capital is, quote, a special, historically, definite social production relation, end quote, by Lenin. It is the social relation between the class that owns the means of production and the class which, 
deprived of the means of production, is therefore compelled to undergo exploitation, since in capitalist society the means of production are bought and sold, they are commodities, and as commodities they have value and can be converted into money, i.e. sold. On the other hand, for money one can always obtain means of production, purchase them. Hence, to put it differently, capital can be defined as a value which brings surplus value by squeezing it out of wage labour. But value is nothing but crystallised labour. Value is the result of labour. Value is expended dead labour. This is why Marx says that, quote, Capital is dead labour. That, vampire-like, only lives by sucking living labour. End quote. Constant and variable capital. In order to understand capitalist exploitation fully, it is necessary to distinguish between constant and variable capital. We have already seen that the full value of a commodity includes the value of the raw material and fuel used, as well as a part of the value of the machinery, etc. The quantity of the value does not change. As much value is carried over into the new commodity, as represents the original value of this part of capital used. Hence we call this part of capital factory buildings and machinery, raw material and fuel, constant capital. But we also know that another very important element enters into the value of the new commodity. The value produced by the workers at the factory. If there are 100 workers at an enterprise, working 10 hours a day each, and an hour's work has a value of, say, 50 cents, then the entire new value produced by them each day is equal to $500. We already know that the wages which the workers receive are less than the new value which they produce. The size of the wages corresponds only to that part of the newly created value which is represented by the labour necessary to maintain the workers, while the additional labour produces surplus value which goes into the pockets of the capitalist. If the necessary labour amounts to five hours a day, then the capitalist pays $2.50 a day to the worker, or $250 to the 100 workers. Thus the part of the capital which the capitalist used to purchase labour power amounts to $250, while the value created by that labour power amounts to $500. We thus see that part of the capital has been doubled in the process of production. Doubled, of course, not by itself, but because of the appropriation of the unpaid surplus labour of the workers. Hence we call the part of the capital used for the purchase of labour power, i.e. for the payment of wages to the workers, variable capital. For the capitalist, there is another distinction in capital, he keeps close track of that part of his capital which has a quick turnover, distinguishing it from the part which turns over slowly. The capitalist calls the factory buildings and machinery, which lasts for a long time, his fixed capital. On the other hand, he calls that part of his capital which has a quick turnover, his working capital. 
The latter includes the capital which is expended for raw material, fuel and wages for the workers. In the process of production, and consequently of circulation also, these portions of capital play different parts. They last for different periods of time. The buildings of a factory can stand up for, say, 50 years. Consequently, only one fiftieth part of the value of these buildings will be incorporated in the value of the annual production. The entire value expended by the capitalist on these buildings returns to him only in the course of 50 years. A machine will work for, say, 15 years. Then its value returns to the capitalist in the price of the finished commodities only in 15 years. In each one of these 15 years, the capitalist receives, through the sale of his commodities, only one fiftieth of the value of the machine. On the other hand, the raw material and the fuel is entirely consumed in the manufacture of the commodity. If the manufacturer has converted a thousand bales of cotton into a finished product and has then sold his commodity, the entire expense for raw material is returned to him at once and in full. The same is true of labour power. The division of capital into constant and variable capital does not coincide with its division into fixed and working capital. Constant capital includes fixed capital, and in addition, that part of the working capital which goes for raw material, fuel and auxiliary materials. In general, constant capital goes for the purchase of expended, or as it is called, dead labour, necessary for production. On the other hand, variable capital is used only for wages to the workers. The two methods of dividing capital can be illustrated as follows. If we divide according to rate of turnover into fixed capital and working capital, fixed capital contains factory buildings and machinery, while working capital contains raw material, fuel, auxiliary material and wages. But if we divide capital into its role in the process of exploitation, into constant capital and variable capital, constant capital contains factory buildings and machinery, raw material, fuel and auxiliary material, while variable capital only contains wages. It is very important to distinguish these two methods of dividing capital. The division into constant and variable capital shows at once what the true and only source of surplus value is. The division to fixed and working capital confuses the real creator of surplus value, labour, with other elements which add no new value. Thus the method of dividing capital, which is customary in capitalist practice, masks, befogs, the essence of capitalist exploitation. Rate of surplus value. In our example, the workers produce $500 worth of new value a day and receive in the form of wages only $250. It is evident that the other $250 are appropriated by capital in the form of surplus value. It is very important to know what part of the labour of the worker gets to the pockets of the capitalist. Then we shall have a definite measure to show the degree of capitalist exploitation. Such a criterion is the rate of surplus value. By the rate of surplus value, we mean the ratio of surplus value to variable capital, or in other words, 
the ratio of unpaid labour to necessary labour. In our example, the rate of surplus value will have the following appearance. $250 of surplus value over $250 of variable capital equals 100%. If the rate of surplus value is equal to 100%, it means that the worker's labour is equally divided into necessary and surplus labour. That surplus value is equal in magnitude to variable capital, that the worker is paid for only half his labour and the other half is appropriated by the capitalist. Two methods of increasing surplus value. It is perfectly evident that every capitalist tries to get as much surplus value as he possibly can. How does he achieve his purpose? The simplest way would be to hire more workmen and expand production. If 100 workers produce surplus value amounting to $250, 200 will net the capitalist $500. But to double production, additional capital is necessary. If the capitalist has such additional money, or means in general, he will naturally do so. This is very clear and simple. The question is, however, how to increase surplus value without increasing the amount of capital outlay. Here the capitalist has two ways. We have seen that the working day consists of two parts, paid, necessary labour, and unpaid, surplus labour. Let us assume that the working day is 12 hours, of which 6 hours are the paid part, and of which the other 6 hours consist of surplus labour. Let us represent this working day by a line divided into 12 parts, every division representing an hour. Thus, 6 hours necessary labour, 6 hours surplus labour. Under these circumstances, the capitalist can increase the amount of surplus value he receives by lengthening the working day, since necessary labour remains unchanged. The part falling to surplus labour will be greater. Let us assume that the working day has been increased to 14 hours. Thus we shall get the following picture of a 14-hour day, 6 hours unnecessary labour, and 8 hours become surplus labour. In this case, we have an increase in the absolute surplus value. The volume of surplus value increases because of an absolute increase of the working day as a whole. There is also another way of increasing the amount of surplus value. What will our working day look like if the capitalist finds some way of reducing the amount of necessary labour? It is easy to answer this. Let us assume that the necessary labour has been reduced to 4 hours. Then the working day will look like this. 12 hours, 4 hours necessary labour, 8 hours surplus labour. In this case, we have an increase of the relative surplus value. The volume of surplus value increases exclusively by changing the ratio of necessary to surplus labour while the working day as a whole remains unchanged. Formerly, we had the ratio 6 to 6, and now we have 4 to 8, a result of reducing the necessary labour time. But how is this reduction of necessary labour time achieved? The development of technical improvements leads to enhanced labour productivity. Less labour is expended on the production of the means of subsistence of the worker. The value of these means is reduced. By the same token, the value of labour power is reduced, decreasing the amount of necessary labour 
and increasing the relative amount of surplus value. In order to reduce the amount of necessary labour the capitalist employs, the capitalist employs the wives and children of the workers. Then the entire family receives in wages approximately as much as was previously received only by the head of the family. When, with increased technical development, the role of the worker is reduced to watching the machine and performing merely very simple operations, male labour can very well be replaced by children or women. The capitalists prefer this kind of labour because it is cheaper. A woman worker is generally paid only half as much as a man, whose place she takes. The pay for the work of children is even less. Excess surplus value. The following method of augmenting the relative surplus value should be especially noted. Every capitalist tries in all ways to increase his profits. For this purpose, he introduces all kinds of improvements which lower the cost of production. For this purpose, he buys new machinery, introduces new technique to increase the productivity of labour. So long as these technical innovations introduced by the capitalist remain unknown to other enterprises of the same field, he receives super profits, excess surplus value. The commodities cost him less, whereas he sells them at the same price as before or only slightly under this price. An individual enterprise usually keeps such an advantage for only a very short time. Other enterprises also introduce technical improvements. Since the value of commodities is determined by the average socially necessary labour contained in them, the general introduction of technical improvements leads to a fall in the value of each commodity unit and thus the individual enterprise is deprived of its special advantage. Under capitalism, the main driving force of technical progress is the possibility of getting super profits. The race for excess surplus value produces an increase in relative surplus value as it brings about a reduction in the amount of labour needed to produce the workers' means of subsistence. Excess surplus value is only another form of relative surplus value. The struggle around the working day. It is perfectly clear that for the capitalist, the simplest way to augment his profits is to increase absolute surplus value. No new technical improvements are needed for this. It is only necessary to lengthen the working day. And in fact, the capitalists always try to extend the working day to the utmost. If they could do so, they would make the worker labour more than 24 hours a day. Lengthening of the working day, however, has its natural physical limits. Moreover, this incurs the ever more determined opposition of the workers. That is why the capitalists cannot limit themselves to attempts at increasing absolute surplus value. Together with this, they also struggle for relative surplus value, which promises them unlimited possibilities. At the dawn of the capitalist era, an extremely long working day prevailed in all countries. Technical development was still weak, and, most important of all, 
the working class was scattered and not prepared for battle. Hence the production of absolute surplus value predominated everywhere. In some cases, the working day consisted of almost the entire 24 hours. The worker only got a few hours for sleep. The rest of the time belonged to the capitalist. It is easy to imagine what an effect such murderous exploitation had upon the life of the workers. A long working day is still common in many countries. In China, for instance, the working day in many factories is 16 to 18 hours long. Even in underground work, in the coal mines, the working day is as exorbitantly long. And such a long working day prevails not only for men, but also for women and young children. In capitalist society, says Marx, the free time of one class is obtained by turning the entire life of the masses into working time. As soon as the proletarian begins to struggle for better conditions, he advances the demand for limiting the working day as one of his first demands. Laws limiting child labour and the length of the working day appeared in the older capitalist countries, in England and then in France, only in the 40s of the last century. Labour legislation everywhere appeared, only after the severest struggles on the part of the working class. The bourgeois government, defending the interests of its capitalist class as a whole, consents to the enactment of such laws, only under pressure of the labour movement on the one hand, and from consideration of the necessity of preserving the lives of the working population on the other hand. As without workers, there would be no profits for the capitalists. In most of the highly developed countries, the 10-hour day prevailed prior to the World War. The working day was shorter only in some cases of underground work, in coal and metal mines. There were some limitations of child labour and the work of women, the limitation of night work. After the World War, when the sweep of the labour movement threatened the very existence of capitalism, the bourgeoisie in many countries made concessions. In 1919, a special proposal was even drawn up in Washington to introduce the eight-hour day on a world scale, but nothing came of this. In the following years, when capital took the offensive, most of the concessions were withdrawn. A general onslaught against the eight-hour day was made by the capitalists everywhere, and in most countries, the eight-hour day does not exist any longer. Intensity of labour one of the favourite methods of squeezing more surplus value out of the workers is by increasing the intensity of labour. It can be arranged that the workers shall spend more labour, spend more energy in the same interval of time. In such a case, he will produce more value. Hence, the surplus value falling to the capitalist will also increase. With machinery, the intensity of labour is often increased by speeding up the machine. The worker must make an effort to keep up with the machine. If he fails to do so, he loses his job. In other cases, the capitalists try to get the workers to work more and more intensively by means of special methods of payment. Excessive intensity of labour is just as injurious to health and life of the worker as an excessively long working day. When the length of the working day is limited by law, the capitalists find a way out for themselves by an unlimited increase in the intensity of labour. 
In most capitalist enterprises, the intensity of labour is so great that the worker prematurely loses his ability to work, ages too soon, is subject to various diseases. For the capitalists, intensification of labour is a well-tried method of augmenting the exploitation of the worker, of increasing the degree of his enslavement. Slavery in the Colonies But the most terrible form of forced labour exists in the colonies, where the imperialists turn the native population into absolute slaves. At gold and other mines, on plantations and on roadwork in colonial countries, forced labour is employed on a broad scale. In South Africa, according to the Masters and Servants Act, if a native runs away from his master, he is treated as a criminal and is forced to return. Everywhere, a passport is required of him to show that he has worked for a European. If his passport is not in order, he is arrested and returned to his previous employer, or compelled to work for another. In the mining industry, especially at the gold and diamond mines, the native workers live in special abodes, called compounds, surrounded by barbed wire fences. The native worker has no right to leave his prison for the entire period of his hire. No outsider is permitted to enter within the fence. Armed guards stand continuous watch. His average wage is less than half a dollar a day, and on this he must feed himself. For this miserable wage, he must toil for 12 to 14 hours a day. In other African colonies, the most inhuman methods of exploitation exist. The men are usually brought to the mines trussed up with ropes. Work proceeds under the supervision of armed guards. The native worker is usually forced to sign a contract after he's been made drunk, and he often does not even understand what the contract means. Slavery is, in many cases, accompanied by quite open slave trading, as an instance, Portuguese Africa, Angola and especially Mozambique, or in the independent republic of Liberia, can be taken, the latter being entirely in the hands of United States capital. Together with open slavery, there is slavery for debt. The essence of this, as Marx explained, is that by means of loans which must be worked out, and which are transmitted from generation to generation, not only the individual worker, but his entire family become the inherited property of a proprietor and his family. Capitalism and Technical Development At the present time, the decaying capitalist system, finding itself in the grip of a severe and protracted crisis, manifests itself as the foe of technical progress. The capitalists and their learned servants often try to represent machinery as being the cause of all the trouble, too many machines, they say. Too many steel monsters robbing honest people of work. Too many products produced by these machines, which then find no market. The workers know, however, that it is not the machine in itself which brings unemployment crises, etc. The reason for these evils is the capitalist system, with its deep-rooted contradictions. It is not the machine that robs the worker of bread, but the capitalist application of the machine as a means of exploitation. Under the conditions of the present crisis, the bourgeoisie evince a predilection for returning from machine production to hand labour. And it is not a rare thing for them to put into practice these mad schemes so inimical to progress.
In America, while many steam shovels and dredges stand idle, thousands of people are made to labour with a pick and shovel on public works. Under these conditions, the USSR is the only country in the world today which continually progresses towards the adoption of the newest and most advanced technique in all fields. The country where socialism is being built holds high the flag of technical progress. Modern technical engineering increases the productivity of labour hundreds and thousands of times. A worker can make 450 bricks a day by hand. A modern brick-making machine turns out about 400,000 bricks a day for every worker employed on it, i.e. about 1,000 times as many. A hand-power flour mill turns out 450 to 650 pounds of low-grade flour. A modern flour mill in Minneapolis, USA, turns out 13 million pounds of the best-grade flour a day to every worker employed, or about 20,000 times as much. A modern shoe factory can produce 83 pairs of shoes per worker every six days, as against one pair which could be produced by a worker working by himself. Modern, moribund capitalism, however, is incapable of utilising these possibilities. Even before the present crisis, the application of the newest technical developments met with tremendous difficulties, even in the richest capitalist country, the United States of America. In 1929, there were 2,730 brick-making plants employing 39,000 workers and making 8 billion bricks, whereas six to seven modern plants with only 100 workers each could completely satisfy the USA market. In 1929, there was a total of 6,500 billion pounds of flour produced in the United States. In order to produce this quantity of flour with the normal production capacity of the Minneapolis flour mill mentioned above, only 17 workers would be needed. As a matter of fact, however, there were not 17 workers, but 27,028 employed in the flour mill industry of the United States. In the shoe industry, even in 1929, that is, in the period of the greatest prosperity, 205,640 workers produced 365 million pairs of shoes, which gives not 83 pairs, but approximately 35 pairs a week per worker. An almost infinite number of such examples could be enumerated. It is important to keep in mind that in its period of youth and prosperity, capitalism brought with itself a tremendous growth of the productive forces of human society. Until the rise of capitalism, no one even dreamed of modern large-scale industry, its high technical development, modern means of transport and communication. It was capitalism that brought with it machine production. It called to life the tremendous wealth that lay buried in the bowels of the earth. It evolved a tremendous advanced technique, lightening human labour considerably and increasing its power over nature. However, capitalism places all this development of the productive forces of society at the service of the murderous exploitation of one class by another. The most perfect means of production is used by the capitalist system as the most perfect means of squeezing surplus value out of the working class.
the race for gain, the race for profit, this is the motive power of capitalist industry. An increase in profit. This is the purpose for which the capitalist introduces new technical achievements. That is why the further development of productive forces under capitalism means the further intensification of the exploitation of the working class, the further enrichment of a handful of capitalists at the expense of the impoverishment of the great masses of the people. But at the same time, by creating gigantic enterprises of a high technical order, by greatly increasing the technical powers of human labour, capitalism prepares the material basis for socialism, prepares the material conditions and the prerequisites for the realisation of the aims for which the proletariat is struggling. It is in this, in the preparation of the necessary prerequisites, for the triumph of the proletarian revolution that the historical role of capitalism lies. Wage slavery. There is nothing more disgusting than the hypocrisy of the bourgeoisie who assert the equality of rich and poor, the well-fed and the hungry, the drone and the overworked labourer. In reality, the bony hand of hunger drives the worker into bondage to the capitalist more effectively than the severest legislation. Capitalism leads to a continual worsening of the conditions of life of the proletariat. Capitalism leads to ever greater poverty among the broad masses of workers. Hunger becomes an ever more frequent guest in working class quarters. Marx says, the Roman slave was held by fetters. The wage labourer is bound to his owner by invisible threads. The appearance of independence is kept up by means of a constant change of employers and by the fictio juris of a contract. Marx, Capital, Volume 1, page 586. And in fact, the worker is free to leave his employment at one capitalist enterprise, only to get to another one belonging to another capitalist. Under the pretense of fighting against forced labour, the capitalists conducted a campaign against the Soviet Union. It is hard to imagine anything more base than this outburst of modern slave drivers against the only free socialist country in the world, under the slogan of fighting for the freedom of labour. The Soviet Union is the only country in the world where wage slavery has been put to an end, where tremendous masses of workers have, for the first time in human history, acquired the opportunity of sane and free labour for themselves, for the benefit of a socialist system where there are no exploiters, and no exploited. Throughout the entire capitalist world, the working masses are chained with invisible fetters to exhausting, hateful labour, the fruit of which only serves to further their enslavement, to intensify capitalist bondage. Creating untold wealth for a handful of drones, the workers themselves suffer more and more from hunger and privation. The place of the slave driver's lash is taken by the overlooker's book of penalties said Marx about capitalist enterprises. Without doubt, the fine book of the foreman, the eternal threat of losing one's job and dying of hunger, affects the present-day worker no less than the lash of the slave driver. But even the lash of a foreman is by no means a rarity in modern capitalist countries. In a number of countries, especially in the colonies, the most authentic slave labour exists for the benefit of the capitalists. 
capital makes sufficient profits from free-wage labour, but where circumstances permit, it is not averse to utilising slave labour. Even in the most highly developed capitalist countries, we may find conditions similar to slave conditions. Under the conditions of the economic crisis, the bourgeoisie gladly employs the most genuine forced labour in various forms of labour service, primarily unemployed youth. In the German labour service camps, hundreds of thousands of young workers live in conditions of an army barracks regime. They receive a miserable pittance for the most arduous labour. At the same time, German fascism forces the camp inmates to go through military training, preparing them as cannon fodder for its military adventures. In America, Negro slave labour still exists. There are about 12 million Negroes there, mostly workers and small-scale farmers. After the formal abolition of slavery in 1863, most of the Negro labourers were forced into a state of abject dependence upon their employers. In the southern states, in many cases, the landlord gives the Negro family a strip of land, seed, food and the necessary tools until harvest time. The tenant farmer has to turn over his entire harvest to the landlord, who reimburses himself for his initial outlay. But the landlord always manages to keep the Negro in debt to him. If the Negro has, say, a hundred bales of cotton, which can fetch $600 on the market, the landlord will contrive to show that he has invested $800. Thus, if the Negro leaves the entire harvest in the hands of the landlord, he will still owe the landlord $200 and be compelled to renew the agreement on the same conditions. This deception is practiced from year to year. If the Negro applies to a court of justice, no one pays any attention to him. A word of a white man cannot be refuted by the word of a Negro. The landlords are not only masters on their own plantations, they have unlimited power in the entire community, and when one of them asserts something before a court of justice, it is law. In the South, the landlord dictates the conditions under which the Negro must work. If the Negro dares to be indignant at the unlawful acts of his master and tries to run away, he is immediately hunted down by the police with the help of trained police dogs. When the Negro is caught, he is considered a vagrant or deserter and is returned to his landlord. The landlord resorts to other tricks to procure cheap labour power, which is applied under the most slavish conditions. When the landlord needs labour power, he calls upon the local court and the police arrest the necessary number of workers. All kinds of fictitious charges are placed against the arrested men. The court imposes fines on the Negroes, who are unable to pay them, and thus are forced into virtual slavery to the landlord, who pays the fine for them, deducting it from their future wages. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, 
please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.